Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Okay, some of the things that struck me when I read this book. First, Kevin Godley is a very funny man. I really liked his dry wit in a lot of the quotes and also in the anecdotes. I mean, the German radio interview, when he mentioned the Blitzkrieg, it's like faulty towers in real. And also when they have this meeting with earth, wind and fire. We didn't see earth or fire, but I think we passed wind on the way. It's a classic line. So it really seems like a very funny guy. The other thing that struck me is I always thought of, of the original lineup as a very studio-oriented band. And of course they were, but I realized when I read this book that they really toured a lot, made a lot of concerts. And it would be great to have some documentation. I mean, if there would be a CD box with uh, some of the gigs, that would be great, I think. Hello, Liam. This is Andrew Dalgano. Thanks very much for your new, updated and now definitive 10cc biography. I had the original and enjoyed that very much, and I'm really looking forward to taking my time getting into this one. All the best. Definitely not the worst man in the world, and Liam has done a great job with presenting a lot of great information and newly found information about 10cc, and definitely a good read for any true 10cc fan. Liam has definitely done his research and has definitely taken the time to check things and to also confirm some things. It's obvious with some of the interviews that he's done with uh, Eric and Kevin Graham that they've provided quite a bit of information that has not been previously shared before. It is a shame that Lowell was not available to do some of the interviews for the book. I think the quotes that Liam uses from Lowell from the various magazines and and interviews uh, that Lowell's done over the years definitely adds a bit more to the book than just having the input from the other three. It is also a great read. It's got a lot of details, a lot of bits and pieces of things that I I was always finding myself to be surprised with so many things that Liam has uncovered. I also like the timeline that he's put in the back and also the additional information that shows all the recordings and all the songs and all the songs that 10CC has produced, well, meaning the members have produced for other people and even all the songs that they've written for other people, especially the list for Graham, uh, which just seems to be endless. Also forgot to mention how interesting it is to hear about Jonathan King and what he uh, got when he gave up 10CC when they signed with Mercury. That's a fascinating story, which I won't, well, for those who haven't read the book, you probably already know the situation. But nonetheless, good book, good read, great job. As I said, this book is well worth the investment. I look forward to talking to Liam at some point in the future. Thank you for letting me share a few words. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We're finally lifted out of orbit from 10cc albums, and we're into this very exciting, slightly random territory where Paul and I are free to roam and free to talk to whoever we really, really wish to talk to. And we're delighted to say that we've got with us tonight Liam Newton, author of the worst book in the world. Hello, Liam. (laughs) Hi, guys. How are you doing? Great, thank you. Good to have you on board, Liam. 
Very nice to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I've been following it. I missed the first few editions. I kind of um, missed it somehow. Then I saw a post saying uh, talking about it. So I did. A, I was on holiday in about May time. Okay. I did yeah. a massive catch, catch up job and listening to it. So I've, I, it's a regular Monday morning uh, ritual of mine to sort of listen to the podcast. So thanks for that and everything you've done on it so far. Oh my, my goodness! Thank, thank you, thank you. There's lots of people skiving off work on a Monday morning, aren't there? <laughs> When they should be concentrating on their work, they're listening to two old blokes farting about on the internet. We're three today. Maybe. Yeah, well, indeed, indeed. I was referring just to us, Liam, I have to say. But no, it's great to have you with us, and it was lovely uh, meeting you up in Stockport for the launch, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. That must have been a thrill for you, Liam, to have that many people squashed into a tiny room. It seems almost surreal now. <laughs> Yeah, it's incredible to think it was it was only about a month ago, isn't it, with what's happened since. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I think uh, really, I mean, really thrilled with the response and um, and also the, the great support I got from, you know, Peter Wadsworth in setting it up. Um, you know, when we did talk about a year or so ago about a launch in Stockport because it felt like if we were going to do it anywhere, mm. that was the place to, uh, to do it. So a big thanks to... Um, you know, for Peter for helping to sort of um, talk to the Stockport Museum and kind of get it get it going. But yeah, no, fantastic to to get the train up to uh, to Stockport, see a great turnout, and also um, you know a few special guests that I wasn't expecting. You know, to have Peter Tattersall there mm. and, and Zeb White. Uh, you know, Zeb I haven't seen for ages, but he was he was interviewed for the first edition of the book. Um, was a real thrill. Um, it really was. So no, I was d- delighted. And big thanks to you because I mean you very kindly filmed it and and even more sort of touching me sort of ended up creating the, uh, the original soundtrack um to it and creating this fantastic piece of music made out of my um my sort of favorite songs which i i really thank you for it was it was a pleasure for me because you and i happened to share the same favorite tracks <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of a, a lovely busman's holiday for me. And it, it kind of it composed itself because it was just... I was feeling particularly inspired, um, surrounded by so many fans of, of the music and having got the, you know, the, the brilliant book. Um, you know, I was, I was full of 10 ness So, um, <laughs> yeah, you caught me at the top of the wave, basically, Liam. Excellent. Fantastic. Brilliant. Great piece of work. book's fantastic um it's it's you know deep deep and wide and uh i was going to ask you liam it it is so much so superior to the original version of the book in my opinion in every respect did you actually toy with the idea of of just scrapping the title the worst band in the world and starting afresh because it is essentially a a brand new book i I wondered how close you came to that yeah well it's a a great point because i mean as i said when when i decided about four or five years ago i was going to dust it off and update it um you know it's because i was getting emails from people who were you know seeing it on exorbitant prices on amazon and Hmm. couldn't get hold of a copy of it so i just thought look now's a good time to update it and i started off very with a very simple idea i guess of just you know adding a few chapters to it and bringing Mm. it up to date yeah and it was really then when i went back through it again i i felt that um 
some of it, you know, I was pleased with, you know, when I, when I read it again, some of it I felt needed to be a lot better. And, and then I actually did, as you say, deep is a good word. I thought, you know, the pre 10 CC period was sort of covered very relatively fleetingly in the first edition. Right. And, and I, and I actually wanted to, to let the story kind of both pre 10 CC and post 10 CC breathe a little more. So yeah, it became, that's why it took so long because what seemed like a very simple task became this real labor of love where I was literally, you know, you're spending every waking hour I could, you know, finessing it and, hmm. and adding, adding to it. It's a great point about the, the title though, because, um, I didn't actually give that any serious thought, but it might have been a good idea because I know one of the things that I sort of see a lot is, you know, is this any different from the original edition? Yes. And as you say, it's pretty much been, I mean, there are passages that are the same, um, but, but it has been pretty much uh, rewritten from sort of top, top, top to bottom. So maybe I should. And, and the other thing that's interesting is that there's been some amusing, I'll just dig, dig a couple of things out because obviously not every 10cc fan is aware of the fact that, um, you know, the, the worst band in the world is a 10cc track. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, that when, when we started to sort of publish, pub, you know, publicize that it was coming out, there were some really sort of choice quotes. I've just got a couple here, if you bear with me, if I can find please, them. Please, please. From, from people that obviously, you know, think that I'm actually having a pop at 10cc um, <laughs> by calling it the worst band in the world. It's one thing to know it, but another to admit We're the worst band in the world, but we don't give a So I won't give the people's names because it wouldn't, wouldn't be fair, but a couple, just a couple of quotes for people that didn't know that that was they thought I was having a dig at the band <laughs> so there's one one that's a great one particular favourite of mine that says whoever wrote this is mental he's an idiot um, <laughs> was, a, was a lovely uh, quote on one of the sort of uh, sites and the other one was what a load of crap one of the all time classic bands with great original sounds who are these dorks that make this shit up <laughs> so um so there we go. So that just to your point about should I have called it something else? Maybe I should, and then uh, I, w- I wouldn't have got those comments. <laughs> in the end, I think the worst band in the world just seems such a fitting title for a biography on on Ten CC. You know, because it just sums up a few things. Obviously, it sums up their their whole sense of humour and mm. um, that sort of self-deprecating style. Totally. It also sums up the um, the fact that a lot of people out there, you know, do think they're the worst band in the world, you know, it, it, and maybe that's changing over time. But, you know, it comes comes from a place where I just sort of felt that the band were, you know, hugely underrated. That was the sort of the original impetus for, for, for writing it. I agree, so, Liam. And, yeah. and, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. It. That, that so okay. comes across in, in your sort of introduction you're very yep. much kind of standing up in court, aren't you? Arguing for yes. the defence. The the, tit- yes. the title of the book is kind of self-effacing defensive, and and your your whole premise for launching the book is seems to be very much from the point of view of you're, you're really defending, going along with the kind of preconceptions about 10C being a soft rock band and being up yep. their own asses and all the rest of it. Before you kind of launch into the positive angle of your of your attack, if you like, did you feel yeah. defensive as you were as you were kind of setting up the book? I think so because I because I think that is, that is the premise. You know, when I originally started it was, you know, it was born out of, of going to Waterstones and, and hoping that there would be a book on <laughs> Tennessee. See, seeing every week in you know, the, the kind of the bookshelves groaning under the the strain of all these kind of lesser bands that mm. you know people were writing about. 
And I think there's there's always been. I mean, I think it's gone through an interesting cycle because there's been, there's been a much better. I think there's a much better appreciation of 10cc, ironically now, than there was 20 years ago when mm. the, when the original book came out. I mean, you know, I guess fans go through those those cycles, and I think there has been a period, I guess, as a as a staunch fan where you do feel over the years that you've had to defend them or or at least then bring to life the story of the band because obviously people only know some people only know a few of the songs and everything else so i suppose yes that it, it was born initially out of that sense of these guys are underdogs you know they need uh you know it, it, it was yeah they, they've hugely underrated that's where it that's where it started to right I think, I think, go on paul i think it has changed in the past 20 years and, and yes uh, Possibly, and quite probably, uh, your original version of the book was was instrumental in that, amongst other things. I think people have a much better perception now of rock history, to, to try and coin a phrase, than, than they did when they were closer up to it, if you like. And yeah. 10CC have, have benefited enormously from a, a sort of a, a, a more uh, a better overview of, of history. Um, yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm really I'm really pleased about that. I, lo- I love the way that you have, uh, as we were talking about, increased the depth of all eras of the story. Because yeah. to understand 10CC, as as the three of us undoubtedly know, but maybe some people don't, to understand the band, you have to know deeply about the 60s and what they were doing in the mm. 60s. Um, and you know, the, the book brings that out brilliantly because because as we know that the years from 72 to 76 are just the just the the visible top of the pyramid to use a consequences yep. analogy uh, <laughs> whereas everything running up to that and everything running down the other side is is really just as important and interesting yeah so i you know and that is uh, is is balanced beautifully all through the book it doesn't just cram uh you know everything into the the highlight years as it were it's it's a really it's really smoothed out really brilliantly done so i you know that's one of the reasons i think the book is so successful it's the best seaside in the world it's the best seaside in the world it's the best in the world i'm glad to hear that and i think that has been the um the response, my, my concern a little bit, and it was one of these things in the development of it with um, the publishers, Rocket 88, you know, they, they were, when I was continuing to add to it and sort of finesse it and everything else, you know, there, there were a few comments about, you know, they, they, literally they were going to run out of pages of the book, and I was thought, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and then when I did go to pick it up, the, the actual printed edition, I mean, it is like a, a doorstop, mm-hmm. and, um, and, I, and I did worry that, you know, how many people will act, would actually be interested in that full story versus you know the uh, i guess as you say the, the sort of the the golden period mm. but i think i think it works much better for that and and certainly when i when i went back to interview um the people like kevin and graham second time around i also wanted to kind of get in a little bit around the childhood and kind of growing up in in manchester and those kind of things yeah. you know those early influences mm. um and even you know because then you get these nice things happening where you know things like the the ggo6 song barry shoes you know which obviously talks about them being in the synagogue you know manchester mm. you know 1963 whatever it's, there's these lovely sort of um stories that sort of weave in from the later years back into the early years father of the right all righteous and guilty in his pressure barry 
no, I'm glad. I'm glad it comes across that way. That was certainly in- the intention. Very much so, Liam. And you get very much this kind of very three-dimensional depiction of of the four main players, don't you? Because of that, yeah. Uh, very, very effective in, in in that regard. Kind of, this is kind of related, Liam. I'm fascinated because of of your. You've got your boxing gloves on, ready to fight the world um, uh, in, in defence of, of, of one of our favourite bands, possibly your favourite band in the world, I, and I want to ask you that question. Can you tell us about where you came into the 10cc universe? Were you the, the punch bag in, in the common room for, for, your, for your fandom? Or, or, or did you have no, a bunch of mates like I did who, who were into 10cc? Yes. Where I came into it was... Uh, Age nine, um, I uh, my sort of best mate at sort of primary school, a guy called Paul Williams. You know, and you go to each other's houses after after school. Mm. And his dad had this amazing stereo. I don't mm. I mean probably not amazing by our standards today, but certainly compared with what I had in my in you know in my house. And he and his dad was a big Ten CC fan, and so he uh, you know he had original soundtrack. I think and How Dare You. Mm. And we would, for some reason, take it in terms of listening to tracks with our with the headphones on. And I guess it just blew my mind when you you know you listen to all the, the just incredible detail that are in those recordings, yeah. particularly on headphones as a sort of nine year old. So I became pretty much obsessed with them from then on. And um, you know, the first record that I bought was was by them. The first gig I went to was was sort of seeing them and everything else. And yeah, I guess I, I wasn't the punch bag, but I was the, the guy that was trying to persuade my mates to like them. And I think, I, you know, we used to go along, in fact, Paul, listening to you on some of the, um, uh, on the previous podcast, we may have even been in the same, some of the same gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. So yes. I've got a group of mates that, I, and I continue to sort of drag them along. You know, we went, you know, we went sort of grey and played at the Royal Albert Hall a couple of years ago. Um they're all they're all very supportive of 10cc i don't know necessarily whether i ever converted them to be you know fanatical about 10cc but certainly i was i've always been an advocate and trying to mm. persuade people to to join the cause um but i think particularly in the 80s you know during that period where they couldn't get arrested it was a really hard thing to do you know and then you go to university and you get into other music and other bands um as as everybody does and then you know, I came back to 10CC when they kind of when they were you know reforming, and I hope that would be the thing. You see, when when they kind of the Meanwhile album, I hope that would be the point where they came back to glory and uh, everyone suddenly all the jo- all the dots were joined, and they got the solution they deserve. But we all know that didn't work out the way we all wanted it to. It was probably ten years too early, or something like that. Really, and I yeah. don't think I don't think long enough had passed. I mean, I, I know you're a big fan of that album from reading the book, and myself and Sean aren't really. But 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 leaving the sort of merits of the songs aside, I think it was just it was it wasn't the right time for a reunion. If it had come along later, and probably yeah. much later, I think it would have had much more of an impact. Really, that's an interesting yeah, point, Paul. Yeah, that's yeah. what I. Th- I mean, the other thing there, Paul, to your point about, I think the timing was wrong. Was you know that when when they were, as you know, when when it was all being sort of pulled together, it was just in that period when Godly and Cream had gone their separate ways. Mm. Sure. So yeah. so they probably didn't want to be in the room together. And they, as you know, they were never all four of them in the room, you know, for any of the recording sessions. So 
I mean, I'm a fan of this, of some of the songs on that album. I, I think in the book, I kind of talk a bit about the, um, like you guys, about the production. Mm. I think mm. is the thing that really lets it down. And, uh, yes. you know, I'd love to have heard a Trevor Horn or a, um, a Thomas Dolby or someone like that, you know, grab hold of the, the songs. I think in the end, it's, it's, um, it's a disappointing album, although I do think there are some good songs on it. But you're right, the timing, I think, was probably all wrong. Um, with, with, with uh, for all sorts of reasons. These uh, less sort of prime periods in the book really spring to the fore because uh, I know Sean agrees here. We were both blown away by the, the positivity that Eric and Graham, you know, um, sh- sh- um, showed in contemporary interviews about what they were yeah. doing in, during the songwriting sessions for Meanwhile. That's exactly what I was going to say, Paul, precisely. Yeah. And that, that was one of the key things, Liam that leapt out of the book for me. It gave me real pleasure reading that because I'd been really in the doldrums with those kind of 80s and, and 90s albums, uh, until Mirror Mirror, of course, very much in the doldrums. And then reading that chapter on Meanwhile, I thought, crikey, I never realised that they actually enjoyed getting together, being in the same room and cranking out 20-plus yeah. t- tunes. And it put a very, very different spin on the whole record for me. <laughs> It's interesting. Those a lot of those quotes are from the first round of um, you know interviews that I did with Eric and Graham. Yes. Which would have been I think Graham was maybe ninety seven and Eric was ninety eight. And it's interesting that even then, even though it was kind of you know post that period where it had all fallen apart, you know both of them I think from memory still talked very positively about those initial writing sessions. You know even with you know despite what had happened and all the fallings out so no they were, they were all from direct um interviews for the first edition of the book and another thing i found fascinating was um that period around after look here i guess and in and yeah. sort of late 80 and 81 the sessions that eventually became 10 out of 10 i didn't realize that they had kind of knocked the band on the head and and they and they let the auxiliary players go around that time mm. um if uh and then gradually, it kind of, uh, it drifted back together almost. It appeared that, oh, okay, well, we may as well make this a 10CC album. Is, is, am I correct in that assumption? And, yeah. And what, what do you know about that, that period? Because I find that really interesting. Yeah, well, this was this one of the people that I interviewed, um, you know, more recently for the book for the second edition was Rick Fenn. Mm. Sure, and um, had a had a really great time, you know, talking to him about the uh, the, the rest of the CC Mark two years. Um, one of the great things that Rick had that he made he let me uh, get a copy of was. He'd, he'd kept a kind of diary throughout his whole time in 10CC. Right. And I think what, I think one of the things he'd done for Graham was just almost, you know, tar- table all of the, the kind of the, the gigs, the, the key dates in, in his time, you know, I guess from 77 onwards. And, mm. he, and he said, you know, it'd be, would, you know, would that be of interest? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> so we talked, so and one of the things, you know, I, I wasn't aware of that, um, that meeting, but it was very interesting. He he had very um, clear recollections of, it, and it, it had echoes of I think the meeting that they had with, on the original band, you know, where, when Eric was asked to come up to Manchester and yes. they had that. That's how it sort of struck me a little bit. Mm. And 
yeah, they were. I don't know whether Eric and Graham were in the in the room when that happened, but certainly he, you know, August whatever the date is, a very clear recollection of the conversation and and his takeout from that meeting was that they they felt that Ten CC was going was going to cease to be, hmm. um, and as you say, that you know, things things turned out slightly differently. But now that was that was Rick was really helpful during that that whole period and particularly around the the recording of look here and you know the contrast with how positive the sessions have been with um, bloody tourists mm-hmm. in the studio and how kind of fraught they were during the whole period of recording look here and with eric recording his you know girls album at the same time in the studio and then some of the songs being kind of swapped over you know it was it was really interesting yeah. just to to shine a bit of a light on that and understand a bit more about some of the um some of the tensions yes it's quite a murky time really i mean uh, obviously with eric's accident graham's going off and doing animal olympics with all of the band minus yeah. eric and that there must have been such resentments brewing from that time yeah and i think you know i, I think there was this episode clearly where you know eric's at home you know convalescing after the um, the crash and um, i think it was three weeks later i think you know graham said you know visit him at home and said you know, I'm, I'm, I've been asked to do this theme song. You know, I'm going to do it, and I think Eric says, and I think said first time around. You know, um, he just sort of felt slightly hurt by that, thinking mm. that was all a bit quick. But I think the real kicker came when somebody suggested that it was released then as a, a 10 cc single. You gotta get a little, get a little every day. You get a sunburn right away. About as brown as a berry, but you can't lie down. That was the sort of the, the start, I think, and then all sorts of the things kind of going on in that in that period. I think that's probably where the trust started to unravel a little bit between between them. I guess that had already started eroding in '76, hadn't it? Um, yeah. That the, the fateful meeting in Manchester. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think. I mean, there's different recollections around that meeting. It was interesting. Zeb White, you know, who, who I was chatting to up in at the launch. He had, I don't know whether you've had a chance to sort of catch up with him and speak to him yet. Not but yet, very but we interestingly, will. one of the things he was telling me when I when I was up in Stockport for the launch was he he actually drove um, Kevin Lowell. He had to go and pick them up from there from wherever I guess in Surrey, wherever they were. Mm. Drive them up to Manchester for that meeting. Um, they had the meeting there, and then he drove them back. So obviously he's he's listening to the conversation, you know, to and from. Uh, the meeting, which must have been amazing to be a fly on the wall mm. um, on that. His, wow. his recollection is, he, he, his point of view is um, there was a meeting, but he doesn't necessarily remember, you know, Eric being asked asked to leave. So there's differing, you know, differing recollections around it. Um, but I think the general consensus is that there was, there was certainly some tension between them. And I think there was a view that um, they were finding Eric a bit overbearing in the studio at yeah. the time, which yeah. took him took him by uh, by surprise and the, the, the bit that's unknown is whether whether there was ever a serious plan for consequences to be a 10cc project with the three of them mm. or not i think is probably the bit that's open open for debate but but clearly yes that that episode starts you know to to sort of uh, create create tension between stuart and gould but i think they came together very strongly for the deceptive ben's album you know there's a real sense of purpose around that you know around re-establishing the band and then by the time it got to bloody tourists we started to see them you know writing independently from each other mm. and then obviously eric's accident so yes you're right it probably does go back go back to that meeting in 
in 76. Very much oh, so. Um, um, undoubtedly, that, I mean, that's really the, the key moment in 10CC history, isn't it? That, yeah. that, that meeting, because as we now know, you know, three against one is a hell of a lot different to two against two. And I don't, uh, your original uh, version of the book was the first time I'd, I'd ever seen that written down. That was, a, you know, a quite a profound thing to see. Although I have seen since a, uh, an interview with Lol, I think, from 76, where he did actually say at the time that they had originally planned to do consequences with, with Graham as well. Mm. I can't remember the exact quote, but I have seen that. So, um, obviously, that you know, it, it was out there. Um, but, um, yeah, you're right. I, I'm sure you're right about the, the enormous vindication of the success of uh, Deceptive Benz and the band after. They were really... You know the, the the way the band was received and the, and the way that the, the expanded band was working, that for a while they were all on a high, and yeah, I guess, yeah. but you know, the, underli the underlying tensions were there. And when tragically or almost tragically, Eric ha Eric had his accident, it, it, it all everything opened up again, and 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 it sort of fell apart from that point, really. Mm. Yeah, and I guess you know one of the things I know I know. Um, uh, there's differences opinion about this listening to the sort of the podcast but i did want to do justice to tend to see mark ii in the book yes because um you know because i mean i you know and i i do think that you know deceptive bends is a really good album yeah. um you know particularly given half the band had gone you know i think it's a really great album and i, and I do think there's a lot about bloody tourists that is is very likable as well yeah they're incredible oh, they're incredible bounce back albums aren't they yeah and I think as a live band, you know, at that time, I was... So the first gig that I ever saw was um, them playing at, at Wembley Arena in, I think it was September 78. Um, they've got nothing to compare it with, but, I mean, certainly they were a formidable, mm. you know, live outfit. You can hear that from all of the, um, the sort of bootlegs that exist. And I think I just wanted to sort of do a little bit of justice to the, you know, not everything ground to a halt in, uh, you know, in November 76, you know, for a couple of years, two or three years and, until the accident particularly outside of the UK, where they were really, you know, really motoring, you know, Australia, Japan, parts of Europe, yeah. maybe not the US so much, but, but Canada certainly. Um, and then I think yeah, Eric's, Eric's accident was the moment where um, where things started to to unravel, because as you say, once once they got back together again, um, they never managed to really recreate that, that magic ever again. Mm -hmm. There's fascinating things in the book, Liam, like... Um, that they were booked to appear on ABBA in Switzerland, which is yes. a, which is a special that I remember very fondly. I mean, on the bill were ABBA, obviously, and Kate Bush singing "Wow." Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, and would have been NCC. I mean, wow, what a bill that was! <laughs> yeah. for it's ridiculous. Yeah, that's what I think. You know, all of those things. You know, there was Eric and Graham were going to play. You know, with the London Symphony Orchestra at the. Royal Albert Hall, you know, if you remember, there was the sort of classic rock album, whatever yeah. it's called. Yes, um, yes. You know, they were, they were, there were so many projects that they were being, you know, lined up for because they were, they were such a, such a, you know, a power at the, at the mm. time. And as you say, that, that, that sort of, the fact that ABBA always held 10CC up as a big influence, they were always yeah. uh, very positive about 10CC. You know, all of those things would have, would have potentially taken 10CC to um, even more commercial success. I mean, one of the interesting things, there's a, there's a, there's one of the quotes in the book, I think it's Graham, where he's saying that the next album, this is before the crash, you know, he talks mm -hmm. about, he's, he's looking forward to the next album and he's sort of, 
suggesting that well maybe we kind of start going back to a few more extended pieces and we're less commercial for the next one and so you're left with that horrible thought of what well, what could have been you know if, if that yes. accident hadn't happened all the entertainers in the world lost their music what would they play what but I wanted to make sure that at least the early part of the 10CC Mark II years was was given justice and people actually, you know, saw actually commercially and critically, you know, in a lot of cases that the um, those first two albums and those those initial tours were hugely successful. It comes across so strongly and, and that was one of the things I really admire about the book, Liam, is that it's, it's so comprehensive about every single uh, part of the, of the saga. Reading it, I suppose over the course of about three weeks, I was—I just marvelled every single chapter. I thought every paragraph was crikey! I didn't know that. So mm. it was literally—I'd—I'd I'd, I'd learn the same kind of pattern of things for each chapter, the lead up and the context, and then there'd be a, quite a lot about the recording and the the, the personnel involved. But the the real thing. Liam, that I, I so benefited from from reading the book was that every chapter seemed to have this lovely kind of regular rhythm where you'd bring in reviews from the music press. Um, mm. So many quotes from Melody Maker, NME, Record Mirror, and so on. And it, it's always lovely to see your favourite bands reflected back in the press, isn't it? It's a real, yes. it's a real thrill, and for me that was something that I looked forward to in every one of the chapters. Was I'd be thinking, I'm looking forward to hearing what my favourite writers at the Melody Maker would would say about this. Do you know what I mean? So, it's absolutely. It, it, it there's a lovely rhythm about the book, and I'm not sure if that was conscious. Did you have a, a magic formula for for how you'd how you'd encapsulate each chapter? Not not consciously uh, as such, but I, I certainly did want to try to capture you know the build-up to an album yes you know for example you know the the you know getting to the under the skin of the recording sessions you know then get into how it was received you know with both from a how it did in the commercially but also what the critical response was to it yeah. and then where where it was relevant also what are the band's reflections on it you know afterwards um mm-hmm. i mean one of one of the things that i did when i originally sort of started the book because when i um initially sort of started work on it in sort of the end of 1993 i um i bought dozens and dozens of old um melody makers mme sounds from the period because, <laughs> that was going to be my next because, question Liam. <laughs> and this how is, did you this get is hold of those well I, I, do you know what i was thinking about the end of the day because i was thinking well it must have been on ebay but of course ebay <laughs> didn't exist then <laughs> So it must have been looking at looking the back of music papers for, you know, people that were selling, you know, back issues. I think it was probably around that. And I still remember the first batch arriving in, and I've still got them actually, um, all of those, all those newspapers. The bit that I I really wanted to capture was, because it's easy for all of us in our life to kind of post-rationalise, you know, you know, think, you know, our memories get a little bit confused and all those things. I wanted to sort of not only capture what everybody thinks about them in the in the time, but actually what was going on at the moment that they were doing it. You know, mm-hmm. so I think mm-hmm. very, you know, that's why I wanted to sort of get that balance of in the moment, what were they saying about yeah. the songs, what were they saying about the recording process, as well as, you know, looking back five years, 10 years, 20 years later, what do they think about it? Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and, and mostly, I think it was pretty consistent. But there are interesting bits where you know you, you do get a different point of view. I mean, the how dare you one is interesting when you sort of see what Kevin Lowell thought about it sort of six months after it you know came out, mm-hmm. where they were very critical of their own writing and uh, very dismissive of songs like "Don't Hang Up," uh, which for me is amazing because that's that's probably a, a top five, top six track of theirs. I mean, yeah. I don't you know, but um, they were very critical of their own writing at that particular time even six months after the launch. So I, I want to just, just to sort of capture, I guess, the the anticipation, the the making and the sort of the, um, the, the feelings and, at the time. The push and pull as well, which so, is really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, you've really captured using those contemporary interviews, which are absolutely crucial in mm. sort of bringing forth the personalities of the band. They really, they really cut through. That all four of them are, are really unfailingly honest, you know, at the time, yeah. considering. And particularly, uh, Eric comes through mm. incredibly strongly. His, his forthright, um, somewhat abrasive, straight-talking character comes through again and again. Easily offended. In, yeah, yeah, and very prickly uh, press-wise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, either, either in first-person quotes or where you've talked to people who have worked with him at the time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really great. I mean, I, I agree with Sean, the, 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 the music press reviews, uh, the contemporary ones are great, but even better, I think, are the, are the at-the-time impressions of the main players themselves. I agree, and, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, they're, they're, it's really great. And of course, we missed out on that. I was just, just too young to kind of be reading about the early 10cc and the music press. I suppose I came into Melody Maker in about 79, around that sort of time, Um, you know, by which time you know, that the peak had, had gone, arguably. So th- this yep. has kind of filled a, a, a huge gap for me, Liam. Uh, I, I really get a taste of what it would have been like going round to my local newsagent, picking up my... It was, I was a melody maker lad. I suppose it was my, my kind of prog rock upbringing that encouraged yeah. that. Uh, but uh, it was always exciting seeing my, my favourite bands reviewed in singles, albums and gigs, uh, gig sections. And I love yeah. the way that, that your book kind of injects that... Um, to fill that big hole. The reviews early on are absolutely incredible, aren't they? Around they sheet are. music. I yeah. mean, I, I, I remember this all the way back in the, in the from the George Tremlett book, which which uh, had some of those uh, incredible reviews as the strap lines. You know, they're the the, the Beatles, uh, the, the Beatles, Penny Lane, the Beach Boys, Good Vibration, um, the cartoon characters, mm. whatever that quote is, and several yeah. others absolutely astoundingly brilliant reviews at that point mm. yeah yeah and also one of, one of the things i managed to track down this time was um a few more of the american reviews you know certainly for right. the first couple of albums and i mean there's one page in there i think maybe it was the reviews of the original of the first album from the u.s press uh, i know there's a sort of page in the book i mean and that is just even even more gobsmacking because it, the yeah. superlatives just sort of keep on coming from every yeah. You know every critic at the time so i mean the thing that the thing that really strikes me when when i having bought all of these newspapers is, is also there's the reviews but there's also the the amount of time that you see them appearing on the front cover of 
of Magic Maker, um, Record Mirror. Right. Even 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 there's there's a there's sort of one right at the heart when they were they were having their spat with NME <laughs> at the beginning of '76. There's a a picture of them on the front of the NME um, at Shepperton Studios while they're kind of um, getting geared up for the How Dare You tour. Yeah. And you just get, you just get a sense that I think it does get a bit lost over time of just how bigger band they were, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the scheme of things around that sort of time, you know, 75, 76. I think they were, you know, pretty much as big as anybody else. Yes. You know, and, and not only commercially, but also in terms of their, their critical standing. And that, that comes across really strongly when you kind of go through some of the old um old newspapers obviously that starts to go from 77 onwards when mm-hmm. when i think you know that not only because of the split but because of the impact of of punk and yes you know, music journalists sort of moving on and, yeah and the but, credibility um, kind of falls off the cliff doesn't it at that point <laughs> Can we have a word about Jonathan King? Because that was another... <laughs> oh, that was a huge revelation, wasn't it, that bit? Well, I mean, for t- t- two points. One, and perhaps you can talk a little bit about this, Liam, is, is the is the business relationship and, and the very fortuitous contractual relationship, you know, he had going forward. But, but secondly, and I know he might be he might be exaggerating but uh, and perhaps you could explain whether you think he is or not he was such a major player creatively um early on uh, with the band um i know he's uh, there was a quote where he considered himself the fifth member of yeah. Tennessee Street. now that may be overplaying <laughs> yes. his card but, but he, even so he undoubtedly had a massive creative influence yes. on the band early on could you could you tell us a bit about your discussion with him yeah, I mean, it was an interesting uh, meeting, um, you know, for, for, for obvious reasons. But I, mm. I dropped him a, a note on his website to say, look, I'm writing this book on 10CC. Would you be up for, for an interview? And, and he responded and we kind of, you know, we, we spent about an hour and a half together sort of talking through um, the early days of 10CC. I mean, I think what I would say is, I, you know, there was, how would I describe it? I think you're right. There was, there was... The impact that he had, I think, on them, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say creatively as such, because I think he, he stepped, he wasn't involved. I don't think in any of the creative decisions around the music. But for okay. example, where, where I think he did play a really critical role, and I think this is something that, that I know Kevin talks about, was you know he was the one that said when it, when they'd had the hit with, you know, Rubber Bullets, um, you need to do this album. You need to. Rec- I think he'd originally said seven days or ten days. Yes. You know, you need to record this album in, in this period of time. And he was. He really sort of. He said, "Look, I want you to work under that kind of pressure, and we need to get that album out." If you remember the the Hot Legs period, it was you know whatever it was a year after the hit. Yes. You know that the album finally kind of leaked. You know, limped out. Now, when you think about it, they'd actually recorded. They'd already got Donna and Johnny. Don't do it. And Rubber Bullets. You know, in the bag. But I guess the remaining um, sort of seven songs were recorded in this in this very uh, intense. Mm-hmm. I think it was in, in probably a two week period at the end of the end of the day. Now, mm. that's the period, as you know, from your conversations with people like Kevin, that they that's where they really discovered who they were, and mm. they and, and it came out spontaneously rather than overthinking things. Yep. And yes. I think that that wouldn't have happened if if he hadn't put them under that kind of um, pressure. So I think there were things like that that he did, and obviously, you know, he had a very good relationship with people like John Peel and the and the kind of 
the, the DJs at the time. I think you know he worked very hard in those early days, you know, to get mm. them get them noticed. So I think he yes he did play a, a critical role. I think the fifth you know when he said he was the fifth member of Ten CC, I mean I think that is there's a healthy dose of um, exaggeration within there. But I, I certainly yeah. think the impact not only from from naming them, you know, the, the, mm. even the five year. You know, he was very clear with me about the five-year plan that he laid out to them. Yeah, you know, and that yes. would work. And he wanted to do that because he knew there would be some ch- challenges around. You know, you're only earning four percent, but he wanted to kind of go. Look, I'm. I know that's going to happen, but this is what I how I see it over the next five years. And in five years' time is when you know you may cash in on that on the whole thing. So he was. He had very clear recollections of of those um, those conversations, and he was very. You know, he's still hugely positive about that whole period and mm-hmm. you know the worst fan in the world song in particular um yeah, i think is his favorite track from that whole whole period still wow. um yeah. and, and he, like the fact that the book was was named after that that particular song so it was one of these things i, I think it really added a lot of color and um and sort of texture to that early period of um of sure. 10cc that was really really helpful to to have that conversation with him what a deal maker in that he sort of got a royalty in perpetuity after they uh, after they 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 signed uh, away from UK Records and then he even backed the right horse commercially. Yes, am I right in thinking he had, he had right. a choice to either get a cut of of Tenzi C or Godly and Cream, and he went with right. the former. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, that, exactly. I mean, I, I didn't know that. I mean, that was that um, he somehow managed to negotiate this four percent royalty on. On future sales, I mean, I mean, it's extraordinary, you know, isn't it? I mean, not, not you know, he gets to uh, continue to own the copyright of the songs, you know, in perpetuity. So you know, there's that element of it. Then he gets obviously the royalties or whatever, you know, on on the sales of those original songs, and then to also negotiate the four percent on future sales. I mean, what a negotiation! <laughs> Yeah. It's genius, but um, it's interesting. The one, the one thing I'll share with you is it's in the book. The one, the only time that I, um, in the conversation with him, where I got the impression that he kind of conceded he made a mistake, was um, about um, the situation in the US, because you know he was uh, releasing the records through London Records in the US. Yes, as you probably know from the, from the book. And um, there was a guy working for him for UK Records that then ended up being a head of promotion at London Records, a guy called Don Wardell. Yes. And Don had phoned him up to say, look, I can put one of these records in the top ten. It's either going to be Wall Street Shuffle or Beach or Baby. it's going to be Beach Baby by yeah. First Class. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you notice in the quote in the book, there's a slight, you know, tangent of, reg- of regret there where he kind of says, yeah. well, maybe I made the wrong one call, even though Beach Baby did prove to be a big, big hit. Yeah, yeah. That was the only time where I saw him sort of concede, actually, you know, that was probably a mistake in retrospect. Because Wall Street Shuffle just seemed like such an obvious US US hit, didn't it? I mean, it's such a... Yeah. You know, if ever if ever one of their tracks should have been a big hit, it should have been that one. Yeah. They should have plugged them both, Liam, really, shouldn't they? Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. For the hour when you can screw me Five reviews so far. I think I'll be getting a few more. Um, and the first one up is um, Karen Piercy, who was actually at yep. the launch. 
She was the lady. Yes. She was the the lady. Of course, I think she spent a lot of time with you and Kate. Um, we got the train home. That's actually, right. That's back it. From, uh, back from Stockport. Yeah. That's right. And um, she asked you who your favourite members were, who your least favourite members were. <laughs> uh, a very cheeky question, which I, I revelled in because I love all that juice. Um, so yeah. this this is what Karen had to say on her mini review. Liam Newton's book is extremely interesting and well researched. It's a concise and thorough collation of articles and reviews about 10CC and their solo projects. It contains really in-depth descriptions of the songs and the recording processes, which are fascinating. And I was particularly interested to find out about the beginning of Strawberry Studios and how the band were involved. The Neil Sedaka sections were a revelation to me. My favourite part in all the biographies is the rags to riches part, the early days before fame and fortune. I think the author has done really well with this book as a point of reference. I would love to see what the author could do with a more personal approach. I'd like to know more about the four individuals and what made the worst band in the world fall apart. Interesting. Very good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, very nice to hear Karen's voice again. Um, I thought having shared the train back together, we would have, I wouldn't be the author, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but other than that, um, she's been very polite there, isn't she? Yeah. Exactly. Um, no, it's interesting the bit around um, what more about, I guess, what the, um, the sort of personality or what made them tick. Is that what you're getting out of Karen's review there in terms of what she wanted more of? Yeah, and and uh, a couple of other people <laughs> have said, uh, and I guess we, we've all got a wish list haven't we for for our mm. kind of the, the the book of our dreams a couple of other people have said to me oh i wish there'd been a bit more juice about about the split in 76 and all mm. the rest of it and and I, i'm yeah. kind of i'm kind of with that because i'm quite naughty really so do you think she's got a point that that you're not writing from a very personal point of view you're writing from a almost a detached and objective point of view yeah, that's probably it's probably right. I mean, I I guess particularly first time around when I did the first edition of the book, when there seemed to be a lot of sort of bad blood around that you know at the time, I, and I just didn't really want to go there because I just thought actually I don't really want to. And this is more this is more the kind of like the second split, if you like, in ninety five, you know, ninety six kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's something I yeah I probably consciously chose rightly or wrongly not to try to drag up um, some of that juice from that particular time. I, you know, I tried to be objective and, I guess, balanced. You know, I think I wanted to try to make sure that all four voices were represented in the mm. book, you know, mm. throughout. Um, but, but yes, they, they, you know, there could have been more of that. I, I know what you're saying. Um, I'm, and actually, I think the split in particular... Maybe, maybe um, could have could have been expanded on. I think it's probably a fair point, but yeah, it was it was coming from a place of trying to be maybe more detached and more balanced about what happened, rather than taking on a um, a particular point of view. I guess around the sensitive areas. I mean, it's less less about um, you know the albums and some of those things. I think it's more around some of those points which are, are super sensitive to the four of them. You know, I, I, I guess I tried to keep a bit of distance there definitely um, so no I, I can i can see that yeah and uh, paul well, you, you yeah. and i were talking weren't we literally within a couple of days of us receiving the book about liam's voice in the book well i think i think liam does a great job because the thing is once you go once you uh 
start putting your own opinions, you have to you have to be very careful because then you're going to be you're going to be siding either one way or the other. And I think I think it's the biographer's job to remain impartial. Yeah. I think yeah. to be almost almost invisible in a mm-hmm. way, and that's mm-hmm. what Liam does. And and ultimately, I think that's greatly to the benefit of the book. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, he, he could have done it in a different way, and many authors would. But um, it's really a, a, a product of, of immaculate research, and that that is enough if it's done really brilliantly, which is what he's done here. Uh, it. It reminds me of the way Mark Lewison writes his books on the Beatles, uh, who you know it does layers yeah. and layers and layers of research. You're probably aware of Mark Lewison, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I think. Ultimately, that's the right approach. I mean, you know, in terms of the Beatles, it doesn't matter so much because you've got many, many authors with axes to grind and there's Mm -hmm. many books about them. But if I were just to have one book about 10CC uh, of of this depth and complexity, uh, I'd... You know, I like the way Liam's done it. That, that's my own opinion. Me too. I couldn't agree more, Paul. And uh, Liam, you've done a fantastic job of being that objective, kind of s- slightly distanced uh, observer. You, it's not a fanboy book. In that you're not you're not raving as I suspect I would uh, about <laughs> all of the Godly and Cream stuff uh, <laughs> and, and kind of moaning about how many blues tracks there are on albums. You're you're being extremely <laughs> extremely fair. Um, one person said to me the other day that they didn't feel that um, that Lowell's voice w- was there as as a strong force, right. and I I thought about that, and I thought, no, you've done a very good job of of, of almost manufacturing Lowell's voice throughout the book because he, uh, not surprisingly, kind of re- refused to be interviewed, didn't he? I mean, he yeah. he he's, he's, he said he wasn't interested in taking part in the podcast, for example, um, mm. and I think you've you've, you've made Lowell's voice. V- very audible, considering. Well, that goes, yeah, but that goes back to the contemporary stuff because Lowell was very strident, you know, in, mm. in his in his in his views mm. at the time. Certainly, as much as the other three. Yeah, and and that's that's been captured. So yes. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's a great loss there because we have his voice from at the time, which is important. True, but Liam, yeah. did you feel that you were compensating for Lowell's absence from the interviews? I, I, mean, I, I certainly. I mean, it was a big regret and a shame that I couldn't persuade him to get involved because it would have been so fantastic to have all four yeah. of them on board and I, you know, I say sure. <clears throat> I tried first time around and I, and I tried again um, this time around um, I just wanted to try to make sure that I guess when people were reading it that they cer- certainly in that period when they were all together that it, that it felt like his points of view were being put across because you know I, I, right at the end of the book you know there's various We've all got our theories around the different roles that each of them each of them played. You know, yeah. I, I think Lowell played a real role around the sort of playfulness of the yes. band. You know, in terms of the the sense of humour and um, not taking themselves you know at all seriously. Um, so I wanted mm-hmm. to, I wanted to make sure that the four forces, if you like, were, were properly represented. I mean, I do think that probably in the later years, in the sort of post Godly and Cream years, it probably is a bit lighter on on Lowell. Um, you know, because it, it misses out those, you know, because a lot of those projects, you really need a sort of first person 
you know, input on, you know, all the albums that he's played on as a guest, you know, working with Trevor Horn. Yes. You know, there's not any interviews that he's made around those, but it would have been interesting, you know, to ask, having, you know, asked him about certain things that he sort of did in that sort of, I guess, you know, 2000 onwards. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think there were probably, probably is lighter on him in the, in that, in the, in the sort of final few chapters, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, probably, probably in retrospect, but certainly I think in the main, I'm hoping that, um, his voice certainly is interesting. When I when I when I um, when Kevin read the book, you know, um, he he felt that Lowell's voice had been represented within there. You know, he he said, uh, you know, it's a shame that he's not involved, but I, I you know, it, it feels like his voice is in the book. Yeah. So you know, for someone that knows Lowell as well as as Kevin, that was that was a that was good enough for me in, in terms of trying to get it get it right. Fantastic. I, I felt I felt the same to Liam. I have to say, should we hear from Mark Hollis? He's a podcast subscriber and a regular visitor to the godly and cream and 10cc facebook groups are you a lurker on those groups by the way liam do you watch secretly yes. <laughs> oh yeah do absolutely you? i mean i'm i'm a lurker on anything to do with 10cc i mean it's just a, <laughs> it's unfortunately it's a habit i i can't break um partly partly because and it's one of the things that drove the book is I still get this juvenile sense of excitement when I find out something that I didn't know before. <laughs> yeah, right. The, right. the amount of pleasure I get out of that, I no, can't begin. Sorry, no, no, Liam, to... that doesn't work that way around. No, we find out everything from you. <laughs> but, you know, like, even, even, you know, so things like, I don't know whether whether it was the, the Jonathan King 4%, but, he, but even, you know, some of the gigs that they played that, I, that nobody knew that they played. I mean, there's a... Yeah, before they played Nebworth, they played this festival in the Netherlands about uh, maybe three or four weeks before. Yes. No one had ever picked up on that before. And then suddenly you kind of find it and then you kind of dig deeper and learn more about it and you find some pictures from that particular gig and all those things. So That's right. I have to say, anything like that, anything anything that's got 10cc connected with it, I'm, lur I'm lurking there and looking looking at it, absolutely. <laughs> well, maybe we, we suggest, Liam, now that you're, you're completely out of the closet with this incredible... <laughs> tome that that's sitting on the desk in front of me yeah perhaps you should poke your, your head above the parapet once okay. or twice right. i think people would okay. love to have a little online chat with you but anyway just a suggestion let's let's hear from okay. mark anyway just a few choice words about 10cc the worst band in the world the new and updated book by liam newton i'm only up to chapter 27 or page 383 if you prefer that so i cannot give a full review but what I've read so far has been interesting, illuminating and informative in equal measure. The look of the book itself is also lavish, from the monochrome photo on the jacket to the gold page marker, making it a striking to look at addition to any discerning music lover's bookcase. What also comes across in Liam's writing is the painstaking lengths he must have gone to to research and update this book and also the love for the band and their music that he obviously has in bucket loads shines through in every word he writes. This is something that I will treasure forever. Well done, Liam. And also, well done, Paul and Sean. Keep up the good work. Great podcast. I think that's I mean, five stars all round, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah praise I mean, praise I mean, indeed. Crikey. Yeah, I mean, to hear that, to just people say it's something they'll treasure forever, I mean, that's... Uh, that's amazing, you know, to hear that kind of uh, commentary. I mean, I do, I do think um, it's nice that um, Mark also picks up on the sort of presentation of the of the book because I do think Rocket eighty eight have done a really good job 
um, you know, with that, you know, just in terms of the little small details, I think the pictures also, well, maybe we'll talk about that in a, a bit later on, but mm. Um, mm. no, it's very kind of Mark, I really, really appreciate that, it means a lot. Fantastic. And we can talk about the, the poor stateside uh, fans of your book, uh, Liam, that were, who were short, yeah. shortchanged the photos. Yes. Oh, yeah, dear. Absolutely. Mark, thanks yeah. so much for your comments about the podcast as well. That's really appreciated. We've got, thanks, uh, Mark. We've got Nigel Collier now. Where do you start? Well, it's 500 pages of very 10cc, very wonderful stuff, hugely detailed. I couldn't just put the thing down. I really enjoyed it. Um, there's so much in there trying to pick out a favorite part is so difficult but um, I did chuckle at the comparisons uh, that were being made between um, a typical touring band staying in a hotel in the 70s versus what 10cc did in their more sedate hotel behavior during the time Um, Kevin Godley's account is uh, particularly amusing uh, where he recounts meeting the suite in a hotel library. It's absolutely hilarious and slightly disturbing at the same time. Uh, It's not probably for podcasting. (laughs) I'll leave that to the book, um, I guess. So you really need the book to, um, to enjoy that tale. Kevin clearly still has away with words um, and his descriptive storytelling style that, that you get in there. Godly and Cream and 10cc lyrics really comes across in the book. He's a he's a great storyteller, and Liam's captured it all. Liam Newton's captured the, everything in there, so it's uh, a great read if you're in any way, shape, or form a fan of of 10cc or Godly and Cream. Keep up the good work, guys. Really enjoying the podcasts. Um, just keep them coming. Thanks. Bye. Fantastic. He's so right, isn't he? Well, I'm assuming this is the same Nigel that is inspired to put a couple of music tracks on YouTube. It's the same Nigel, presumably, I I guess. Um, Nigel Collier. Yes. Um, So I think I forwarded you the link. Um, A a beautiful rendition of Somewhere in Hollywood. Yes, indeed. Um, Beautiful. We just see his hands on the piano. Oh, yes. 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 Fabulous. I I I told him the other day, I said, you've got to do the whole thing. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so I'm just going to keep putting pressure on you, Nigel. Yeah, I mean, I think he, you know, Nigel sort of dropped me. Uh, I think I don't know whether it was on uh, on Twitter or some of that, but there was a link to it to say that he'd been inspired to by the book to have a go at doing the, in- the intro to somewhere in Hollywood, and I, and I kind of clicked on it, and it's a stunning. Maybe we should put a link link to it because it's a stunning mm. piece of work. I mean, musically. It's fantastic, but also the, even the way the video is done, mm. you know, just it just sort of um, fades to the different sort of uh, you know different in- instruments that he's playing, mm. and then there's a follow-up um, that he's done, which is the introduction to um, "Feel the Benefit." Uh, yeah. There's a version of that that he's also done, and I've asked him whether he could do one of "Old Wild Men." I think that would be a really, really nice to sort of hear, you know, his version of that. So, no, well, perhaps, I, I would just perhaps, say, I mean, uh, the, perhaps the Nigel of- and I could do a, a we could do a duet. Um, if Perfect. I if I get Paul and my gizmo out, you fancy that, Nigel? <laughs> we, we could do a virtual duet. Uh, if you, yeah, you do a bit of guitar or piano, and I'll and I'll I'll, I'll gizmise along with you. Sounds great. But I mean, it's one of the things with the book. You know, when when people write to you with um, and have been inspired to sort of create a piece of music like that, like like you did with the, the original soundtrack to the launch. You know, that's just. Uh, beyond what i uh you know expected with the with the launch and it's great people like the book 
but to go that step further is uh, is amazing. So thank you very much for that, Nigel. And I look forward to the uh, the Nigel and Sean duet. It sounds great. <laughs> no pressure. Here, 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 here. Here's um one of our stateside. Uh, uh, a regular, regular and very entertaining contributor to the Facebook groups. Um, I think Shelby, Shelby Gwynn is from, I think, Las Vegas, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Greetings, Liam. Shelby Gwynn here from Las Vegas, Nevada. And I did just want to say how much I've enjoyed reading your book and compliment on how well written it is. I was very impressed with how well you wove the stories of the four separate members together before they even knew one another. And I just thought that was a wonderful tapestry of the beginnings of 10CC. I found your book to be revelatory and so darn well written. I cannot believe that you are not a professional writer, but it is indeed a job well done. As a side note, I would like to say Graham Goldman's new CD, Modesty Forbids, is phenomenal. Well, more praise indeed. I mean, it's, and it's lovely. I mean, you know, to, to imagine, you know, one of one of the things that's interesting is when you, um, you know, when people post things about about the book, and you and you see people in different countries that are um, that are getting it, and you know, to imagine somebody in Las Vegas, Shelby, you know, reading the uh, reading the book is a is a pleasure in of itself. I mean, hmm. it's just uh, it's a great. <laughs> it's not something you would expect. So I think that it's lovely to get that that uh, feedback. Thank you very much for. Um, for the for the, for the really positive words and it's it's great that um you know there are some fans in the in the u.s i mean I, I maybe it's a point just to say you know apologies for anyone that did get the in the u.s that got you know not everybody will maybe be aware but some of the first edition books in the u.s unfortunately went out with um with pictures in them so i know rocket were um, very apologetic about that. Went back to everybody, hoping yeah. to, to make recompense. So yeah. that's been sorted. So anyone that, that does buy the book in the US now will get the pictures as as per usual. Um, so, so Shelby, if you were one of those, uh, I apologise. Um, but um, hopefully, it didn't spoil your enjoyment of the book. Sounds like it didn't. No, obviously, and he he's commenting, Liam, on on the fact that you you are coming across like a professional writer. Was one of the things that struck me from your from your talk at the launch was that you said that this was is and, and will always be the last book you ever write um was it just yeah. something kind of a bit like the alien movie where it was just kind of in your in your torso ready to <laughs> burst out and and now it's gone you can kind of you can crawl back into a corner is that how is that really how you you see it um i mean i've got no burning desire to to write anything else i mean i, I joined writing I, I like words and uh you know uh I, i've never done anything on this scale i think there's 170,000 words within this and I, I do like the the sort of art of crafting you know uh, the sentence the paragraph the story then you know the narrative it's one of the things that becomes became very addictive and one of the reasons again why it took a bit longer to get actually get the book out was sure. you keep going back in and rereading bits and then mm-hmm. reworking bits um, and I do love that. That's a kind of a, maybe a, a guilty pleasure of mine is that 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 sort of, you know, taking a, a longer piece of, of, of text and trying to sort of sharpen it and express it in the best possible way. So but I think, you know, I, 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 I can't think of another subject that I'm as passionate about to do all that research and, you know, be that excited around to do it. You know, even other bands that I love. Um, I'm not sure I could go to the lengths that I went to with this one. So mm. I think it is just a, 
it was just a one-off um, because, uh, it, would, reason, really. because it would kill you is that what you're saying <laughs> I just I, I think you've got to be really super I mean super sad maybe some maybe might, might kind of put it <laughs> in, in, in the, the pursuit of as I said finding out these facts or finding out things that are new to me and therefore hopefully will be new to a lot of lot of fans and creating a story out of that i think you've got to have that passion for wanting to constantly pursue those new you know those new facts if you yes, like or yes. new part of the story and i just i guess i'm just not as bothered about other subjects not bothered enough to pursue it to the extent yeah, i think you need to to get something like this yeah so, you do yes. need to be obsessive don't you about those things yes. uh, to have the drive to to do it Obsessive is a good word. Yes, yeah. I think that's right. And, 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 and I, I say that, you know, in, in a very complimentary and loving way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul yeah. and I, you know, we had the same kind of attitude towards consequences and there may or may not be uh, plans to do a stage version of a mini consequences, Liam. Uh, you know where wow. you heard that here. You know, you know where you heard it first. Yeah. And there may or may yeah. not be some desire to put it down in writing. But you know okay. these these are early plans, and but you're right. The the passion and obsession is like a driving force, isn't it? Um, that you want to you want to share, not just with your mates at school, uh, but you want to sort of share with the world. And w- with something like your book coming out, reaching a a lovely wide audience, the podcast reaching a much less wide audience. Suddenly, there's a kind of vindication that our mad obsessions over the years might actually have a much bigger audience than we thought. Yeah, and I think it's one of these things like like the, the launch, you know, when you we had about 100 people there, I think, at the launch, to have people that share that obsession mm. with you, you know, that sense of connection of, of people who um, love something as much as you do. I mean, that, that that's such a great, great feeling. Um so no, you're, you're absolutely right. But I think it, you know, you'd, I think to, to do something on this scale that there is, you know, the amount of times on holiday, you know, <laughs> the last sort of few years, I'm you know I'm desperate to get on the laptop to sort of do a bit more work on the on the book, <laughs> you know, as does, hasn't always gone down so well with the family. Um, no, you know, yeah. But but it but it but it's just that it just becomes very addictive. Of course. In terms of uh, of doing it, but yeah, and I, I loved it. I mean, it's just such a enjoyable experience. Um, but this one's taken me so long to, to do, you know, the two phases of the first one and the second one. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've got enough time to do another one anyway for another band. So uh, <laughs> that's that's probably I probably run out of road. But oh, sure. I picture you of this kind of bard of St Albans up in this attic room <laughs> with a with a, a an endless supply of candles and quills. Um, <laughs> as, as it, have you had to burn an awful lot of midnight oil for this? Um, do you know what? I, I'm actually sat in a room like that at the moment, but no, I haven't. I mean, I, it's the kind of thing that I grabbed, you know, an hour here, two hours there, whenever I could, you know. So it, if it was, if you were on holiday and you had a period of time, you know, you could spend a bit of time each day, you know, on it, or even just sat on the on the on the sofa, you know, with, with one eye to what's kind of going on and doing it then, because you can kind of dip into a particular chapter. Maybe that's why each chapter's got its own kind of. Um, its own kind of narrative and story. Yes. You know, you could focus really on on that particular chapter, you know, and then you could drip, you know, you could uh, pull out of it again, and then a couple of days later pick up in a different chapter. You know, it was just yes. you could kind of dip in and dip out of it um, like that. But no, it's it's really been sort of grabbing 
you know, an hour here, two hours there, you know, time at weekends, um, time on holiday. Um, that's really been it. And then over the last sort of year in particular, when it's been, we've been trying to get it to a place where we could actually finish it, you know, yeah. and then, and then you've got that, that dilemma also is when is it finished? You know, because, you know, the, even after it's finished, there's still stories, you know, that you hear that you kind of think, shit, I wish I could have included that one. But you, you, you're never, ever going to have the full the full story. You have to kind of draw the line somewhere. But that's that's also part of the challenge. Liam, I'll tell you when it's finished. Um, it's when you, in the very last paragraph of the book and in the in the very last part of the timeline, you mention the podcast. Yes. And that, that gave Paul and I... <laughs> you know immeasurable joy as you could probably imagine um thank you yeah. thank you very much for for well, shoehorning well, us well, in well. there but um it was it felt like we were kind of like the footnote of the 10cc story like we killed it <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's probably yeah i think i think the band was uh, in real time on its last legs long yeah. before we came along but but uh, I, Liam, I'd just like to give a shout out to your family, uh, uh, you know, and I'm I'm glad they're going to get you back for a while um, because it's. I'm not just, sure they are, but anyway, thank you. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's obvious, but uh, now I come to think about it, you know, the vast majority of people who do this kind of project are full time writers. They, you know, they're not doing a day job, so it makes the achievement all the more impressive because yeah, yeah. you know you're doing you're doing it part time. Uh, no wonder it took so long, you know, because yeah. I think it's, yeah. it's incredible. Um, can we just go back to the, the pictures? Um, you, yes. you mentioned them briefly. I mean, the, the pictures in this in this book are, are, are incredible. Memories, feeling with you, but you soon forget that we started in Particularly, I particularly love the ones you, you got out of uh, Aubrey Powell's drawer. Yes. You know, oh, those crikey, I love those. Yeah, un yeah. Un unseen sessions, fantastic. And I I'd just like to ask you, Liam, um, and I think I might know the answer uh, in advance. Was there any pictures you would like to have included but couldn't <laughs> for any reason? Yes, there is. I mean, there's a few. I mean, I mean, well, maybe we'll yeah. talk about um, Aubrey Powell's um, pictures, maybe uh, in a sort of you know in a second. But no, yeah. there was. There was uh, I sort of shared a picture at the, at the launch. There's, there's a. Um, a series of pictures that were taken at the um, the Buddy Holly event that uh, Paul McCartney um, actually had, I think, in early September '76 to celebrate. Yes, yes. would have been yeah. Buddy Holly's 40th birthday. There's a series of about uh, actually uh, uh, 10 or 12 pictures from that event, and it was a real it's a real who's who of mm. you know pop at that time because I think you've got Elton John, Eric Clapton, Queen, you know, obviously Wings, and everybody else is kind of there. There's probably quite a famous picture that many people probably would have seen, which is the, the group shot of them all lined up, sort yes. of yes. smiling at, at sort of camera. But there's some lovely pictures of um, off, off kind of off, you know, unguarded moments um, of them sort of just chatting. And, and amongst that, um, there's a picture of what I think is probably the last um, picture of the original lineup because it's the four of them. It's Paul McCartney and, and Linda with them. They're kind of all lined up, seemingly, seemingly having a great time. Mm. But you know that I think that was September the seventh. They they finished the lunch and then they head back up to Stockport, and that's obviously you know that was that. So mm. I, I really wanted to get that in the book, but unfortunately we couldn't track down the um, the photographer. Oh, you know we right. tried a few different routes, and I think just again for the point of um, you know royalties and copyright, you know it was just um, 
a risk that sort of Rocket said, look, we can't we can't put stuff in here in that regard. So maybe maybe we can share that picture with this group, you know, when we when we put the podcast out. Sure, so oh, that'd be wonderful. Things, there are, yeah, there are a few things like that. There's there's about three right. or four of them, um, which are just a really really you know the the, the, the last pictures of the original original band that 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 there were a few of those that i wanted to you know to include in there sure um, yeah i think there are there are other ones i think or these are the ones that um say i met up with um aubrey powell i think as everybody knows was the co-founder of um hypnosis and he was the i think storm was the gut was the ideas man storm thorgerson yeah had these ideas for these amazing covers and then i think Poe, as he's called, his job was really, he was the sort of photographer mm. um, who, who in the later years, when the budgets got bigger, would go off to these incredibly exotic locations to, uh, you know, to to take pictures on these of these covers, like the, the, the Look Here one, which is him on a, on a beach in Hawaii, <laughs> um, for a picture of a sheep on a couch, and it wasn't even the front cover of the album in, in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't he the guy on the front of Bloody Tourists? As Correct. Well? Yes. Yeah. So it's him. Amazing. It's him. You know, and it was. I think you probably probably heard he, he flew out to the Caribbean to take the cover of the of the. Uh, I think he went to from memory. I think he maybe went to Barbados or something and couldn't yeah. find the right right beach. And it was only when he was flying back and the plane landed in St Lucia. It was the plane was landing. He saw this perfect beach and it was back in the days where there was a stopover and he could literally grab his camera, his girlfriend swimming in the Caribbean Sea that you can see on the left-hand side of yeah. that picture. He just set up his tripod and took the picture of him and then when he got it back to the studio, you know, his he was too small in the picture so there's a very clever cutout where he cut himself out and then put himself bigger on the, on the picture because the amazing thing about those covers, you know, it's in the pre-Photoshop, you know, era you know, so mm. all of those amazing covers are are done without all the technology we've got today, and yeah. they're, they're just really stunning. So I was really, really pleased and uh, delighted that he would not only let, let me to sort of show all the the album covers in the book, but he gave me access to about you know nine or ten previously unseen uh, pictures. And there's a nice, yeah, there's some nice ones in there, isn't it? And it, yeah. it was such a treat, Liam, to uh, at the launch to see that group picture with um, the four boys with Paul and Linda. Uh, it was a wonderful, a wonderful picture. It was great to see yeah. that. Um, and it, it's interesting because there's a bit of synergy going on here because in one of our, Paul and my, my early episodes, where I think I think it was The Road to Consequences, Paul, if I remember rightly, early, yeah, early doors, yeah. you, were, you were pinpointing that Buddy Holly party as the, the kind of nexus, weren't you? Uh, 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 from 10cc into consequences do you remember it was very much a kind of a a pivoting point i I do i i mean i I, we learn as we go i I now know i think i'm right in september the 7th 1976 of course if i'd known it was buddy holly's 40th birthday then it would have been easier for me to find that out but yes yeah uh, if we have our timeline right they went straight back to strawberry and then the fateful sitting around the piano listening to people in love and things we do for love um happened you know perhaps less than 24 hours later or something and that and that so yeah another um uh, you know a crucial time in 10cc history and, and the die was cast at that point really definitely i definitely. think what happened paul just just one thing and my, my my understanding of it is that they'd they'd done the um they tried to do people in love uh, uh-huh. before the 7th 
they then, okay. they then had had this um you know lunch and then gone up and, and we, then they listened to it um and okay. that was when they kind of got when they kind of went well you know this, this can't carry on like right. this and then and then basically you know eric goes to lol and says you know so what do we do and lol says well let, i think we should get together and discuss it and yeah, that was the Manchester meeting. So I don't know. That, that's kind of my sense. There is, there is a. I know you, you very kindly sort of shared some of those track listings. Um, you know that Harvey Lisberg gave yes, you, yes. which are really fascinating to look through. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure there is somewhere. Maybe it's in that list or somewhere else that I've seen one of those boxes for the People in Love sessions, which said the 23rd of August for some reason. Mm. Oh, so in okay. my so in my memory, well, by my my understanding, I should say. They played the Nebworth gig. Uh, they got together to play the Nebworth gig and then started recording People in Love, then went to the, uh, the Buddy Holly thing and then it all fell apart is what I, I think happened. Who knows? Oh. Yeah, it's a little bit murky, but it gets it gets clearer as uh, as, as we do more research. Yes, that 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 would that would make a lot of sense, and that was where they recorded a quarter of the tracks each, and then separately <laughs> yes. put it all together. And not surprisingly, it sounded bloody awful. <laughs> yeah, everybody sounds yeah, really. Cool. Everyone sounds very uninspired on that. Mm. You know, you know, I I, yeah. I, I worship at the altar of of Lawrence and Kevin. Um, but uh, I think that their contribution to it just sounds disinterested to me. Well, they obviously sub, they couldn't hide it. Mm, uh, it mm, sounds mm. they couldn't hide what they really thought of the track, and that yeah. that comes out. No, I think that was it. I think that's the, the, the sort of uh, you know the the chronology. But no, I certainly let let's share that picture. There's a in fact I was looking at a few uh, a couple of days ago. There's there's um there's sort of three or four of them in some capacity. There's one of um, Kevin Lowell and and Graham talking to Eric Clapton, mm. um, and I and I think I seem to remember from talking to uh, you know to to Graham that I think Eric Clapton was still moaning about for your love. I think you know under his breath. <laughs> that oh, sounds, give it a rest. That sounds amazingly petty, doesn't it? I it can't really believe does. that. This is a. A chap who's contacted Paul and I two or three times now with with wonderful, very, very personal stories about how he came into the 10cc world, um, inspired by, by his dad, and uh, with some lovely stories. And um, it, it touched me that he'd listened to the podcast prior to listening to the CD reissue of Consequences, so he felt prepared. So, Simon, honestly, I, uh, I hope we didn't wreck it for you. Um, by over, <laughs> overthinking everything, but uh, he's been a lovely correspondent, and I, I apologise now, Simon, that Paul and I have, have never really had the the time to get back and, and answer your your missives properly. But this is Simon's contribution and and his uh, mini review, Liam, of your book, Liam Newton's book review by Simon Smith. So Liam Newton's book, wow, it's been an absolute joy to learn so many new and interesting things about 10cc and uh, the individual life and careers of Messrs. Goldman, Godley, Cream and Stewart. So as soon as I heard about this book, I really eagerly anticipated its publishing date. I wasn't fortunate enough to be able to read it first time around when it was originally published. 
my 10cc journey really began listening to my dad's 70s compilations and picking up rubber bullets uh but it wouldn't really spark off until about 10 years ago when i heard the things we do for love and after that devoured the greatest hits you know the albums then into getting to their work before and after but this book really has helped me fill in many gaps in the group's story i've read both uh, eric and kevin's books but knew little about graham and lowell but did learn quite a bit from about Graham's early musical days from your guys' podcast. Brilliant stuff. Um, so this book's really provides some interesting background on both of them. However, when I first got the book, I must admit I did jump to the later years. Um, really keen to know more about the Meanwhile and Mirror Mirror albums. I found the stories about Graham and Eric's tension during this period fascinating, whilst also really sad. You know, two guys who achieved so much together ended up feeling the way they did about one another. Uh, Liam's profiling of the wider impact of the band's musical output was also interesting to read about. The number of musicians that borrowed, sampled and covered these songs is staggering. I've had great fun seeking out these cover versions. You know, a real mixed bag of results without a doubt. It's due to the effort Liam's put into this, to pull all the sources of information, as well as unearth other little nuggets, makes it a real treat to read about. I'm really envious, actually, Liam was able to sit down with three of the four uh, members of the group. To, I mean, wow, what a treat. Obviously, they've all given honest opinions, which really gives a kind of warts and all account of the life of this group. You know, I really look forward to hearing new things about 10CC all the time, and I think we've been really spoilt with this book. Uh, when it comes down to, you know, the bits of information that we've picked up. A really easy read. It's a book I know I'll enjoy coming back to time and time again. Whether that be for reference after listening to a particular album or track or your podcast or simply just to enjoy reading from start to finish. On a final note, can I say thank you to both uh, Sean and Paul for allowing me to share my comments on the book and also, you know, taking the time, care and dedication to continue to produce these great, informative, fulfilling podcasts. Real joy to listen to them. Uh, as others said, really, I'd feel like I know you two personally. Um, so keep up the good work, chaps. Thanks. <laughs> oh, God, that's so nice. And yeah, Simon, I'm so, I'm sad to say that you do absolutely know us personally because this is, um, I think we've laid ourselves bare on this bloody thing. <laughs> that's really that, yeah, is, again, that is quite something lovely. isn't it Liam wonderful absolutely and I think um, I think one of the things that he sort of picked up on there which I'm, I'm glad comes across is I wanted to try to um, there's all the cover versions and the things like that but I also wanted to try to throughout the book sprinkle in the mm-hmm. musicians that have said mm-hmm. something um, you know about them over the years you know because when you then tie it all together you know whether it's Paul McCartney or whether it's um, REM or whether it's you know Elbow or wh- whoever it is with ears yeah there's a whole raft of musicians Axel Rose you know the list goes on of, of people you know Morton Harkett from Aha and you know mm-hmm. at different points who just who particularly pick up on a particular particular song or a particular period of theirs so I you know that that was an important thing for me was that um the sort of broader influence and the respect that they have within that kind of musical community was was definitely something that I wanted to try to get across in the book. Yeah, yeah you weave that you weave that in really nicely. And those uh, there's musicians from all points of the compass chipping in, isn't there? I mean, there's yeah. uh, there's um, uh, guy out of Depeche Mode. I don't know which yes. which one. Maybe was Donna. it uh, Martin Gore? I think. Yeah, Martin Gore. Sorry, and 
uh, and John Lydon, of course. References and, to uh, Flaming Lips and people like that that I didn't even realise yeah. were fans. You know, it's marvellous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from from, yeah. from mine, mine and Sean's point of view, we're both, as you uh, listeners to the podcast will humorously <laughs> know, we, we love, well, we love the Beach Boys, but I was going to say we also love Genesis. And I was yeah. very interested... Hey, in you got Tony in first, Paul, I'm, I'm pleased to say. You've lost your bet this yeah, time. Uh, I have this time. Tony Banks waxing lyrical about art for art's sake, which is correct. Yeah, I'm amazed by that actually. Give me a silver, give me a gold, making a million for when I get old. Art for art's sake. Yeah, I'm surprised he like they likes that one best, but hey. I'd have thought he'd great, be a, great... he'd be more of a somewhere in Hollywood fan, to be honest. Yeah, but there you go. Yeah. And very a very complimentary about, you know, Eric and, and Kevin, I think, in particular as vocalists yeah. in, yes. in what he says. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's Morton Harkett talking about Wall Street Shuffle, you know, there's all those American musicians, you know, whether it's, you know, Dave Grohl from Nirvana and, and Foo Fighters talking about, you know, the impact that I'm not in love, you know, had. You know, I did, did try to sort of sprinkle them throughout the um mm-hmm. throughout the book because it's because it is an incredibly eclectic group of musicians and bands that pay homage at different points you know it's not like they're all from one one genre they're from a very broad um range and then you add in all obviously all the the mashing up and you know sampling and everything else on top mm-hmm. of all of that um, yes. uh, yeah and there's certainly in that last chapter chapter 30 that's where i try to sort of bring all those threads together to try to it's almost the counterpoint of the introduction just to try to sort of force the argument across the line yes um, exactly this is the, this is the legacy everybody this isn't the worst band yeah. in the world this is one, and I love the way you've collected together all of those accolades, Liam. It, it honestly, it filled me with real pride. Um, you know, I felt like, you know, yes. And I bet yes. that was the effect that you wanted, wasn't it? Definitely, and I think this is why, you know, it's gratifying doing it now that, you know, 20 years ago wouldn't have been the case. But the fact you've got a whole succession of things, you know, whether it's the the BBC Four documentary, whether it's the kind of record producers stuff mm. that they did, whether it's I have a novella award for outstanding, you know, song collection, whether it's the sort of technology, you know, projects and those things, you know, and some of the stuff that they've had recognition for outside of the band. Um, it just, it brought it all to a very nice conclusion and quite, I think quite a powerful conclusion. I think it's hard not to read that and go, you know, whether you like the music of 10CC or not, you can't help but respect the contribution these four guys have made mm. uh, to the industry. I mean, it, that's just, that's, um, it's undeniable. You know, I don't think that's the critical thing, fan or not. These guys have done an incredible, you know, body of work over the course of the last, you know, 40 or 50 years. And that, that's really the point of that last chapter yeah. to get to wrap what's home. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. agree more. I was going to ask you in, in a second, Liam, was there anything in the book that you weren't able to put in and you wanted to? <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking back to the 10CC convention in 1998, where you told the amazing story at the time that Neil Sedaka had a kind of fumbled uh, seduction attempt of, of Eric Stewart. And we can, <laughs> and we can say, we can say that now um, uh, we can broadcast it because Eric Stewart actually, you know, yes, 
20 years later, wrote that story in his book. So that, that's out there yeah. in the public domain, as it were. And yeah. that, that astounded me at the time. But I just wondered, is, is there anything you're able to share with us here that couldn't quite make the cut in terms of the written word? Don't let us waste no time, no. The good thing is hard to find, oh. And you know exactly why's on my mind. What, as in stories that I excluded from the book? <laughs> yes, e- either in 98 or now. Only only that one, I think. Um, well, I guess there's, I guess there's only that, that particular story, which... You know, Eric shared with me when we were doing the when we sat down. I, I think I said at the at the launch. You know, one of the, mm. the highlights um, of, of writing this book was when I when I uh, then got Eric involved. You know, I, I ended up meeting him, and um, I, I literally spent about seven or eight hours with him in his home studio, and um, you know, literally with him sat there um, picking up a guitar and saying, you know, this is this is how we wrote this one or, you know, I did this and then, you know, and then playing a few tracks from, you know, from his next album. And he told that story about, um, about Neil Sedaka. And then before the first book came out, I think I'd, I'd sort of circulated, I think a sort of final proof. And, and when he and I were chatting about that, we, we both agreed that it didn't actually, there wasn't much benefit other than the sensationalist part of it. Yeah. Actually, yeah. it wasn't really fair on, yeah. Neil Sadaka or his family at that point to sort of put it in. So I, yeah. I agreed with that and I took it out. So I was quite surprised then to read it in Eric's book mm-hmm. because <laughs> we've kind of taken it out for the, for the benefit of, of Neil Sadaka's family. So there's nothing in there that there's nothing in there that I um, that I excluded. I mean, it was just coming back to the point originally around the sort of sensationalism part. It was, I, you know, you, I could have done a lot more digging around you know, yeah. whether whether it's the split or whether it's what Eric and Graham think of each other today. Um, yeah, there would have been some, you know, some juice. I think you sort of said, you know, around that book uh, earlier on. Mm. I, I just didn't really want to go go there because I didn't really think it it would um, add a great deal. I think you can read between the lines enough in the book, you yes. know, as it is. So no, so no, yeah. there wasn't anything in there that I um, that I can think of that I uh, I excluded, unfortunately. Sure. Okay. A poor sure. old poor old Eric was the the subject of a few advances, wasn't he? When Jonathan King was a, a, a bit mad on him, wasn't he? <laughs> Quite possibly, allegedly. Um, allegedly. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, he, he's that, he's the best-looking guy of the four. Or, yeah. I mean, I know the others. Are, in our, in our, hun- in our humble opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, being very, be very metrosexual. <laughs> yeah, well, he was. Uh, I feel comfortable with my metrosexuality, <laughs> yeah. if that's a word. But he was he, he was always the dreamy-eyed one in looking. Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, so, you know, I, I, I completely, completely get it. You know, in terms of that, I, I didn't get. I didn't. Again, Jonathan King didn't volunteer anything around that when we were together. There's no sort of stories there. But, sure, um, sure. but yeah, yeah. Ooh, la, la, you're such a turn me on lately. A, a cheeky one for you. If I was yeah, in, in my kind of mildly alternate universe, the only thing that I, I felt was even slightly missing from your book, which seems churlish, given that I'm, I'm holding it here and it weighs about four and a half kilos. You know us, you, you, you've heard us chunter on for 40-odd podcasts. Very much my thing, yep. and I'm sure it's Paul's as well, is that kind of lengthy musical analysis, track by track, um, going on forever. And, and so reading the book, literally, I, I 
drank in the detail about the inception the and and the reception of albums the reviews that the comments yep. from the members of the band but i felt it was just ever so slightly light on the detail about every track on the album and i i just wonder if if that was a deliberate thing to kind of save you putting out something that was 1500 pages long or were you thinking that other people will be doing it. Peter Kean's book, for example, is coming out very, very yeah. soon. That's looking in detail yeah. at all the tracks. Was that a conscious thing? I tried to certainly for the sort of the, the core four albums. You know, I tried to at least you know cover each song in a relative amount of, of depth. I think if yes. you then get into some of the the later albums uh, and solo albums, it, it is certainly you know picking on a on a few. Mm. I do know what you mean. I was th- I was thinking. Um, uh, you know, just a couple of days ago about when I think about those songs that really floor me, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's Somewhere in Hollywood, Old Wild Men, um, don't, don't Hang Up, whether there's enough in there around those, around why they're so amazing. I mean, there are, I think, in some songs I do do it, but I think you're, you're possibly right. There could have been more on, on, you know, more detail on the musicality of some of the some of the songs on the albums. Yeah. Um, Quite quite possibly, it's, but then it would just, take it again, into a thousand to, word territory, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think this this, like I said, this this other book that's coming out, uh, which I didn't I didn't know about while um, while doing this one, but maybe okay. that fills in the gap because that can get into um, literally the detail. You know, it's the purpose of that series, isn't it? About getting into into that. It's hard. It's trying to um, it is trying to sort of tell some story within each chapter, and sometimes the sort of detours around the detail of the song sometimes, you know, interrupts the flow of the overall story a little bit. But I do yes. know what you mean. I think there possibly could have been could have been more of that. Um, yeah, maybe we'll do that in the third say in the third edition. Let there be lights, action, I just wanted to ask the question, really, uh, and it's not a criticism as such, because I feel that, th- that there might be kind of a three-way thing going on here, and I- I'm not putting the podcast in any kind of inflated place, but with your book um, that's so good at doing what it does, Peter Kean's book, which of course is an unknown quantity at the moment, but we know is going to be looking at literally every record that the, the 10cc mm. chaps put out, and the podcast, which is two blokes chuntering on at random about their erroneous opinions, maybe there's some kind of triangle going on where we've kind of got it, haven't we? We've got we've got the music in depth, we've got you giving the story in depth, and mm. maybe Peter's is the is the last piece of the puzzle. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think you could be right. I think one of the things that I guess I um, was trying to do was to sort of um get the facts right in the story you know the, the sort of get as close as i could to the you know the the, the sequence of events in which yes. they kind of happened because i because i remember you know there are there are things when i read for example eric's book um there are quite a few factual things that aren't correct in there in terms yeah. of whether it's chart positions or timings of when things happen now for some people that doesn't matter because it's just you know it's part of the the story but for me it, it irritates me a little bit not you know those facts not being correct mm-hmm. so maybe maybe there was an element of um you know overly focusing on the on the story and the facts and the sequence of events 
that may have been the thing maybe that that um drove the tone of it maybe but you're right i think mm. you know the great thing about the podcast is i mean the, you know you you, you 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 and also you're coming at it from a musician's perspective which is really fantastic you know because when you're getting the guitar you guys are getting the guitar out or you're kind of talking about the songs um you you add a whole other dimension to it because mm. you can explain things that a, a non-musician you know would be able to pick up not always really right though not always right liam that's the <laughs> no, thing. But i think but i think that's the thing you know the interesting thing on the on the recent podcast is there's actually very few tracks that all four of you agreed about you know i think there were one or two <laughs> yeah. you know there was very yeah. often polarized opinion about them and and that's that's fine i mean that's the um that's the nature of the thing isn't it, it that's the beauty of music really ways. isn't it exactly absolutely so oh yeah i think there's, there's yeah. subjectivity and, and, a, and a critique that you guys sort of bring to it which um does shine a different light on the songs than um i guess what's covered in the book i think that's that's right and oh, yeah i look forward to reading the new book when that when that comes out i don't know when that when that is what the, the i think peter told one. me uh, I, I think it's due out in april um, but okay, we'll, and, and, and we'll keep, you know, we'll keep sharing the links whenever, whenever Peter hears back from his publishers. Uh, that 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 could be a, a a lovely companion piece, couldn't it, Liam? You could absolutely. We'll, we'll, oh yeah. We'll, 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 we'll do you touch briefly on Eric's book? I'd like to ask you, Liam, as an author, what do you think of Kevin? and of Eric's books mm. that have come, you know, that came out, you know, virtually at the same time. And, and I think are, are real worthy additions to the canon. Yeah. Really yeah, give us definitely. a great understanding, a great understanding of, 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 you know, Kevin and Eric respectively. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think look, any, any of the guys um, doing something like that, particularly, you know, they've been both choosing to do it in a, in a kind of ebook e- e- format with lots of extra content, you know, it's, yeah. There's lots of, you know, whether it's the early um, Godly and Cream demos that you guys have, you know, played on your podcast, but, you know, having those in there on Kevin's book or whether it's Lol and Eric, you know, reminiscing about the old days in Eric's book. I mean, it's, yeah, it's great nice. from a fan's point of view to have that. You know, I think both of the books um, are very much, you know, help to bring the personalities of those guys to life, I think. Yeah. You know, Kevin's book is, you know, is, is very much from him and eric's book is very much from from him you know in terms of that you can hear their their voice and uh, in, in their in their respective editions the bit that it didn't have i mean neither book um spent a lot of time actually in talking about the 10cc period yes um, yeah that, you're right and that's, that's, the only, isn't it? that's the only bit that i kind of i would have when i was you know first downloading them and, and wanting to read it you know i was i was hoping to to learn more about that that core tendency period. In I was both hugely of the disappointed by that, Liam. To be honest, it felt there a bit was, sh- short change. There seemed to be more about Bono than uh, than about ten cc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that, that, but it's interesting to see it. That's a whole life, um, and Kevin yes. said the same. Who is yes. He said, "Yeah, it's a whole life's." And, and for for whatever reason, we focus in on a very very short period of yes. of time, uh, and you know they've. All of them have done extraordinary and extraordinarily different things throughout their lives. So mm-hmm. I guess that their, their viewpoint's valid as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, they're too busy living their exciting lives, yeah. you know, rather than documenting them. I mean, that's the, that's the <laughs> thing. I mean, um, that's it. So you're that's right. It, yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're biographies, um, they're covering the whole period of their, of their life. They're really great reads. There's lots of great content within them. I'm glad they both, you know, they both did it. Um, yeah. You know, personally, as from a fan's point of view, I'd, I'd like to have, 
you know, I like to them to open the door a little bit more to the sort of 10 CT years, but um, that would be my only my only critique of it. Mm. Yes, and wouldn't it be lovely to get books from Graham and Lol? I mean, hmm. I suppose Graham's a possibility. In fact, I believe I've heard him talking that he that he was going to do it and then sort of pulled back. I think I've heard him say that in a recent interview. Yes, oh, that's right. right. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I don't know the exact timeline, but, it, but he, he was thinking about doing it. Lol, of course, an unknown quantity. Hmm. Um, but that would yeah, that Graham, would be one. I think. Graham's was just, you've probably seen those online, uh, that online interview that he's done. Is it called, is it with Rockstar Radio or, I can't remember the, the station, but it's um, a series of interviews that That's he's done about it. Yes. Birds. But very, yes. And one of them is around don't expect a book from Graham. And he, and he says in that that he, That's as you it. say, I think he even had a journalist lined up and then at the last minute decided that he just didn't want to do it. So, right. um, yeah. And you just can't imagine Lowell wanting to do it you know because he's just too busy having a good time and you know having fun you know i can't imagine him writing wanting to sit down and write about it <laughs> so he just doesn't look back in time does he liam it would no, seem to me i think he's just looking at looking at the future i don't think there's anything yeah. in there around you know looking back exactly so maybe i mean wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to have one from all four of them but it, it yeah. feels uh, <laughs> unlikely yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it was very interesting but um we got a message from Kevin yesterday about his oh, yeah. new album, the fact that it's it's in yeah. the can, it's ready, he's really happy with it, uh, and it'll be out in the early summer. But there was a, he signed off the message in a very, very interesting way. He said, lots of new projects to get on with. Um, you know, tatty bye. It's it's almost like <laughs> he's, he's, he's constantly on the go, hasn't he? And he's always been like that. That was yesterday, and now yeah. is, is tomorrow's project. Um, I think perhaps he and Lola are more similar still than they, they would care to admit. I'm expecting a message from something out of this world. I'm expecting a message that I really want to hear. Yeah, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, Kevin, he's, he's involved in so many, you know, interesting projects, isn't he? Because he's, I mean, he's still doing high-profile, you know, video directing projects yes. for people like Elbow, on the one hand. You know, he's, he's got this film in, in sort of pre-production called The Gate, which yes. um, hopefully the Wells see the thing. light of day. Orson Welles um, film. Yeah. He's been writing, you know, he's, he's obviously got the solo album on the go. He's, he's joined the board of a, of a gaming uh, company, you know, and the list goes on. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, it's incredibly, um, it, it, you know, exciting series of very current projects that he's working on. The bit, the bit I really appreciated um, from, because Kevin of all of the guys has probably been um, the most helpful, I think, in this second edition because yeah. um, we, we had a great chat with him in, in. I had a great chat with him in, in Dublin when I met up with him again in the way that you guys um, did, you know, a few years ago. But whenever I, I think, I think there's a couple of things I would say. One is. Um, he really, you know, when I when I sent him the sort of final version of it, he actually read it mm. from cover to cover and actually mm. said, "This is a great story." And I, I just get the sense that um, while Kevin is looking, he's obviously always looking forward and, and doing lots of current things. He kind of gets it in a sense of what the purpose of the book is. It's actually called almost setting the record straight about this, or well, not just about Tennessee, about about. The contribution of all four of those guys so mm. you know he was really happy to write the foreword for the book i asked him to do a little video for the book when we when we first put it up for uh, to be pre-ordered you know within a day he'd sent that back and wow. um, and even when i when i sent him the sort of final version of the of the doorstop uh version of the book 
and he, he sent me a, a really lovely note back saying, uh, you know, more than does is justice, which I think is such a nice thing. Yes. Um, yeah. to say. But, I, but I said to him, it would be really helpful if you if you could, you know, if either could post about it or whether you could sort of um, have a couple of pictures with it. And literally, again, with a day later, there's three pictures back and he's posted about it on Instagram. So he's just been, for someone who's so busy and so, you know, really um, culturally active, um, I just get the sense a that he really gets you know gets in terms of why we're doing it, but also um, just been so supportive that sort of helping me to get the book finished. So I can I can't thank him enough. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great it's great it's great to hear that. Uh, he's I just want to go back to something in the book to do with Kevin. In fact, the day Sean and I met him, I think he was going off to meet Gavin Friday when we'd right. kind of when you when we'd finished with him as that's it were. Right, and, that's right. Now. I was. I'd love to hear a couple of things about Kevin's collaborations, which came to fruition later. But this was fascinating that he wrote with Gavin Friday an early version of Son of Man. Is that right? Yeah. He. Well, it was this great story. Again, this was this was fairly current when I first met him. Uh, I did the first interview when we were chatting. Um, right. Harvey Harvey Lisberg had had this idea for their twenty fifth anniversary to get them. Get the original band back to re-record Neanderthal Man for some reason. Oh, yes, um, yes, that's right. An right, idea right. that he floated, and Kevin said to him, "You know, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm not doing that." And then yeah. he went away and thought about it, and then Kevin wrote the lyrics out, and and he he was saying to me, "You know, he'd come up with this lyric, you know, purely set of lyrics, um, which I imagine probably are very similar to the lyrics on the track now. You know, that told the story of." Um, you know the the gestation, you know, into ten cc from those kind of hot legs days. Yeah, and I think what he tried to do then was um, he tried to collaborate with Gavin Friday for a couple of days to to add some music to it, and I think that just didn't you know, they, and it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it kind of just literally sat on a on a shelf until GGO Six started almost ten years later, mm -hmm. and then they kind of he pulled the lyrics back out again. I guess then Graham, you know, wrote some music to them. But no, it's that's that's it's nice those kind of stories that were left unfinished in the first edition because mm. you kind of, you know, you're salivating about wanting to know what those lyrics are for Son of Man, but obviously they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not out there. You know, by the time you get around to the second edition, it's been added to. And I bought him a holiday, bought him a car, turned him into a pop star. But the man got sick with growing pains, turned into the monster with green brains. The other one that's interesting, I think, was, um, you know, the first collaboration between uh, Graham and Kevin was um, for a track on Graham's solo album when they first started writing together again. And they wrote this song called Just Another Day. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it was and it was too dark, wasn't it? It was too dark. So, so by the time it appears on Graham's solo album, it's got lyrics written by uh, a writer called Frank Musker. I think they've rewritten the lyric. Um, yeah, but that was the, that was the springboard when it came to Kevin wanting to write again. He had that experience of writing with Graham again, which mm -hmm. they both really enjoyed, and that was you know it's a nice stepping stone into then the, the sort of GTO six period. Yes, sure, exactly. that's fascinating, exactly. isn't it? And yeah, lovely that your the new edition of your book, Liam, kind of throws the door open, doesn't it, on those new things? Marvelous. <laughs> Uh, I, I love that story about um, <laughs> the, 
the jam in the doldrums, you know, around the time of uh, yeah. uh, This Is The World, their second album. And, 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 and Graham supposedly writing them a song and well as classic quote but luckily it was shit so it <laughs> yeah have you have you any idea what that song was no I, but i did ask graham because during it was during the period when that quote came out from paul weller that we i think we were doing the interviews around that time mm. right and I, I and i said i don't know whether you've seen this but um because <laughs> he doesn't say great paul weller doesn't say graham in the quote he says that guy from 10cc but my assumption was it would be graham yes um, okay you know yeah. so I, I said sent the quote to graham and i said um you know does this does this ring any bells what what's the song but he, yeah. he has no recollection of it oh, okay. um but it's it's you know you, you've got to think that uh, if there was something did it reappear on a you know, on a record later on but it's so hard they're just such, such an unlikely bedfellows aren't they mm. um, they are it's a great, um, great story, though. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Genius. That'll be um, a, another project for all three of us, won't it, to unearth these things. Shut that uh, one down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've got... we've Paul and I, for a couple of podcasts now, we've talked about the Peter Peter's box of tapes, mystery tapes. Yes. We don't even know what's on there. Um, and I've got my oven already. I've, I've done my research. I've, you know... I've got the <laughs> thermometer in there at 60 degrees Fahrenheit, four hours and counting. So uh, the, 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 um, the story is still unfolding, Liam, I think. Yeah, and I think one of the questions I got asked at the, at the launch was, you know, are there lots of things in the archives? You know, and I think there probably are. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of unreleased tracks from that pre-10CC period. There's a few little jewels, I think, from the... I think we talked about that kind of Revlon ad that they yep. they recorded shortly before the split. I've, I've never heard that. It must, it must exist somewhere. We think that that's think one of sounds... Peter's tapes. Ah, amazing. Yes. Well, and possibly. Then, I mean, I, I contacted Revlon in the States. They've got a huge kind of archive uh, museum type thing. And, and I searched high and low and looked for, it was the natural wonder eyelash or yes. something of 1976, <laughs> but uh, drew a blank. So, so I, yeah, I was hoping we'd get to it from we'd get to it from the third party, but I guess we'll have to go back in house. Yeah, it was. Is that possibly one of one of um, one of Peter's tapes? Then the red, the the the, uh, the uh, famous Revlon session. I'm sure that it, it's it's a possibility. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Your bets, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was it was mentioned at the time when when we were chatting to Pete, uh, Peter the first time, Paul. Oh, we'd love to see it. Love to hear that. Brilliant. <laughs> Liam, it's been fascinating uh, spending a couple of hours with you, and um, it's such a thrill to, to to have spent so much time with the book as well. I've I found it hugely enjoyable. I found it rewarding. It's taught me so so much. Every single page, and I know that it sounds like I'm just throwing platitudes at you. I'm not. Um, we've been doing a whole podcast 
exactly a year too bloody early. Um, and in, in, in many ways, I wish we'd, we'd had it as a companion because it's been such a help yeah. on, on the later episodes, like Meanwhile and Mirror Mirror, where you've, yeah. you've given a whole 3D background, even more reasons to love this band. Um, and uh, so I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, it's very kind of you. And I think if you say the, um, the book and the podcast, um, I think complement each other really well, um, you know, around that. And I'd say likewise thoroughly enjoyed over the last sort of year and hopefully for months to come you know mm. listening to the to the podcast every monday so uh, keep up the good work from your side <laughs> thank it's fantastic you. and uh, thank you very much, much appreciated yeah it's been real fun liam take care stay well been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening